As you probably saw on Facebook, sorry if I posted too many pictures from vacation, you know, so I noticed everyone dropped me as their friend. No, no. <laughs> um, as we were going through vacation, there was a lot of lessons. And, and so, you know, first, first time back, I need to give a little bit of vacation stories, but, but hopefully not too many. But one of the days we had planned, and Susie and I had planned, we were, we were camping in Santa Cruz, and San Francisco is only an hour, hour and a half away, and we had planned this day for the family that we had hoped would be an incredible day. And, and we had, we wanted to go to Alcatraz and, and visit Alcatraz, tour Alcatraz, and actually bring our kids home from Alcatraz still, but, um, <laughs> you never know. And it, that didn't work out, and we're planning and, and we're, we're looking ahead of time. Turns out you need to get your tickets for Alcatraz several months in advance, and we didn't even know what days we'd be there to, to do that. And, so, but we, but we still figured out parking and we're debating taking Barden and the trolley and all this stuff. And we finally had this plan and we had put a lot of effort into it and where we'd park and we'd go on a bay cruise and that we could still do and lunch. And, and of course, Ghirardelli Square with chocolate because chocolate makes the world better. And yeah, um, and, and so we go and, and I can remember as a parent thinking, I wonder if this is going to work. Because there's a lot of details they have to do and then a boat ride and the kids weren't that excited about a boat ride and we're like, well, okay, no, it'll be great. It'll be awesome. And, and we went through the day and, and, and rushed to get some lunch and all, all the things worked out. And, and I can remember on this boat ride and we had, we had put all this work and money and time into this and we're doing the bay cruise and we go around Alcatraz and yes, even the boys were making the Alcatraz jokes. They're like, which one of us is, are we going to kick off to Alcatraz? And, um, Get to see Angel Island and go under the, the bridge. Some dolphins along the boat. And, and I can remember thinking and, and, and stressing a little bit as a dad, did, did I do okay? Did, is this a good family day or not? Or did I just completely ruin the day? Because I didn't know if they'd like it. I have one that gets very sick very quickly with movement. And, and that tends to not be good with boats and cars and anything else that moves. But... Um, and, and so we came back and we got home and, you know, you asked this question as dad, so, so what, what, what's the best part of vacation so far? And inside you're hoping, right? Because you've put all this time and effort and provided for this incredible day. And I can remember asking that actually a couple of days later and um, a couple of the kids were like, the boat ride, dad, that was the best. And, 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 and I'm like, Yes, parenting win. This is because you never know. And but but what would have happened if they looked at me and said we hated the boat ride, or we get on the boat and they're just sitting in the middle of the boat playing Pokemon Go the whole time, or something like that? And it, it would have been like, are you are you serious? I, I did all this for you, tried to give you this incredible day, and you completely blew it off. Praise God, they didn't, and we had a great day as a family. It's a silly example, but today as we come to Isaiah, we're coming to a serious example that that illustrates where God comes to his people and and for us today, comes to us today as, as we read the history and he says, I have given you everything. I have given you grace when you don't deserve it. I have given you salvation when you don't deserve it. For the children of Israel, I have given you my presence. I have given you a land. I have given you my blessing. And what I want from you is that you not only enjoy it, but that you bear fruit. And we're going to find out today that God is angry because they didn't. And they despised it and they rejected it. 
Yeah, we might feel that as a parent in little microcosms. But imagine the creator of the universe watching his creation rebel against him when he has given everything for their joy, for their presence. So we come to Isaiah 4 and 5 today with that sort of background. And I'd like to start with a word of prayer before we go to the Word. Lord God, we come to Your Word and I pray that You would challenge us, convict us, God, but also encourage us with Your hope. Lord, there are so many things in prophecy and poetry that are hard to understand. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be working inside of us to to illuminate, to guide, and to to, um, instruct us with Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4 and 5. We're going to go through a couple chapters again to get through Isaiah sometime before we die. We're going to have to do it with with chunks and bigger chunks together. And so we're going to take a couple chapters today and go through them pretty quickly. And that means we don't always read every verse, but the the great thing is is you have Bibles and you can read those. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one under the seat. We'd love for you to take that out. And if you don't have one at home, take that with you as our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. But we come to Isaiah 4 and 5, and, and Pastor Andrew did a marvelous job in 1 through 3 of, of getting us started in Isaiah. And if you didn't hear those, I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. But we, we come to the end of the preface today. And the first five chapters are Isaiah's introduction as he's, he's giving the big picture, the big message of God reconciling a fallen world to himself. And specifically for Israel, the, the message that says, Follow God. Come back to God. He has wonderful things in store for you or judgment in store for you, depending on what you do. And so 4 and 5 today are the end of the preface. Then next week we jump into um, the, the, the heart of the book. But before we jump in, I, I want to I do something this morning that's a little different. And I, I love giving tools. Anyone already a little overwhelmed with Isaiah sometimes reading through it? It, 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 can be, it can be challenging. There's themes that come and go and, and recurring things, themes. And so one of the things that's helpful, and, and this is just an idea, you don't have to do it, but is to take highlighters and highlight your Bible and to, to use different colors for different themes. In fact, we have some ushers here. If, I'm going to explain how to do this this morning. If you'd like a set of highlighters for your Bible, just raise your hand or, or they'll come down and let's just pass it down each aisle. Take a set of highlighters. One of my goals is that our, our, our study of God's Word is not just a Sunday morning thing. I, I want you to come back and be able to study God's Word on your own, to be able to come back and read Isaiah in a few years and say, okay, there's some of the themes. And so ushers, hand out some highlighters. And, and if you want, if you have a, a device, um, you can go ahead and highlight the device if you want. Um, Actually, most of the apps, I know the, the Olive Tree um, Bible app and the Logos Bible app, you can highlight and you can highlight different colors. Um, one of the things that this allows you to do is to start to see some of the themes that keep coming up in Isaiah. Um, for me, I'm a visual person, so if I can visually see that, it helps me cut through the clutter and, and understand what's going on. Stalling a little bit while the highlighters are, are coming out. There's five colors there, blue, orange, green, yellow, and pink. And we have a number of themes. And on your notes and on the screen, um, here's five of the themes that I would suggest we use for Isaiah and different colors for those themes. The first is Isaiah, we had mentioned, 
is the Old Testament book that has the most to say about the attributes of God out of any other Old Testament book. And so I put yellow for God's glory and attributes. And this, this is one of my favorite ones because as we go through Isaiah, every time you hit a description of God or a name of God, an attribute of God, just highlight that in yellow. And then later you can thumb through Isaiah and just get a picture of God that is magnificent, that is grand, that is holy, majestic, and righteous. One of the other themes that is woven throughout Isaiah is God's sovereignty, His supremacy over all. In chapter 2 that Pastor Andrew preached on last week, we saw the mountain growing and it, it represented that God is over all others. His kingdom is over all others. In fact, all others are coming to Him. And I, I suggest blue for God's sovereignty and supremacy and, and, and ultimately our trust in Him. I think of blue as the sky above all things. And so, you know, I, I have these little tricks that help me. The other two themes that we, we've seen already um, is hope and judgment. And these, Isaiah tends to go back and forth between the two, brilliantly so, because if it's all judgment, we lose hope. If it's all hope, we don't change and address the sin in our lives. And, and so we have hope and judgment. And so for judgment, I, I'm using red. For hope, I'm using green. Now, I only have five colors, so along with hope, I have redemption. Because we're going to see references to the Messiah. In fact, in today's text, we see a reference to the Messiah. And, and that is God's hope, God's redemption. And so those, um, green is a great color for that. Think of growth, think of life. And then finally, our response. It's great to think in terms of, okay, what are we called to do at times? And, and there's times where we have some very specific things in Isaiah, other times that, that we infer some things, but we have orange for that. Only because it's the last highlighter left. I, I don't have a good association for, for orange and application. But um, as we go through today, though, try this and try highlighting. If you're not comfortable highlighting your Bible, that's fine. You don't need to. But this is a tool that we can do, use to, to maybe understand God's Word better. So, for instance, in the beginning of chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, because 1 was the judgment, and so you could put a little red by that. But in, in 2 through 6... I've given some examples. So in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the in that day is, is now a section on hope. It's a section on what God is promising will be the future for His people. So I highlighted that in green. Now actually this whole section is a section on hope. But rather than highlight your entire book of Isaiah, one of the things I do is I just go down the left side with my highlighter. And do you see the green stripe? And so I just put a stripe down for green, and then when we get to judgment, maybe a stripe down for red. And it lets you at a glance see the flow of Isaiah. As we see the flow of Isaiah, we understand what God is calling. You see beautiful and glorious, because the branch of the Lord, I'll explain in a minute, refers to the Messiah and, and Jesus Christ. And so when it says that He's beautiful and glorious, that's a description of God. And so I put that in yellow for His glory. Down in the middle of the passage, we see in the middle of hope a statement of judgment. Um, You can't have one without the other in this case. And and so I put that in red, a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. I'm not going to tell you everywhere where to highlight. And it's, it's subjective. There may be things that you see that I don't see. But I just wanted to give an example, and we'll, we'll, we'll use one other text this morning to give an example to try it and see if this is a way 
that God's Word can stick a little better and that we can understand it a little better. This isn't just about Sunday morning. It isn't just about listening to the pastor feed you. It's about learning how to feed ourselves from God's Word. So let's jump back to the text, Isaiah 4, and we're we're starting at verse 2. If you remember last week, verse 1 ended an entire section on judgment and judgment from the children of Israel because they had forgotten Yahweh alone. They had put other idols up and they were worshiping other idols and they were worshiping self. And so now Isaiah comes back to a section on hope. And this section I've titled, We Take Hope in the Greatness That Is Coming. God reminds us of his ultimate plan. We'll work through this section. We start with in that day. And if you had studied last week and remember last week, in that day was a term that we used frequently last week. In fact, verse 1 says, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day. And whenever you see in that day, little bells should go off and say, this is a future time that he's talking about. Now keep in mind the the mountains that we've talked about. He's looking off in that day and seeing a whole number of events as one mountain range. And so it it might be like some of you are are enjoying grandchildren, right? Some of you are anxiously awaiting grandchildren. I hear things like, someday I'm going to have grandchildren. Now do you know the exact day? I don't think so. In, in fact, you say grandchildren plural, that probably means a period of time where grandchildren are coming and, and you're able to bring them and feed them lots of sugar and play with them and rile them up and send them home and still sleep. And, and so it, grandparenting, I've heard, is wonderful, except for the parents. Uh, <laughs> but we, we think of someday in the same way that in that day is used here. In that day is a future time. And, and so we've seen in chapters 2 and 3, in that day meaning judgment. Because when we see the phrase in that day, it's referring to all of God's work at the end of time. All of God's work bringing human history to a close. That includes judging sin, and it includes setting up a new heaven and a new earth. All of that is in that day. Does that make sense? So we're talking a period of time, an event or events, rather than a single day. So in that day... The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And right there we see that we're talking in the future and we're seeing a future hope. There's a lot of discussion of what the branch of the Lord is. Some authors think it's it's just a really beautiful tree that has grown up. But what we have here is whenever the branch of the Lord is used, whenever that phrase is used, it's referring to far more than just really cool vegetation. It's referring to the Messiah. And one of the ways that we... We know this is by looking at other scripture. Flip over to Isaiah 11. It's just a a few pages to your right there. Isaiah 11, verse 1. And as you study God's word, see how it's used by the same author, different phrases. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And we can see there it's obviously talking about a person, someone in the line of Jesse, someone that is going to be part of a kingly throne. And so when we come back to Isaiah 4, God here is giving hope. He's saying a Messiah is coming. They don't know that it's Jesus yet, but we know that it's Jesus. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of survivors of Israel. And again, Some of these things, it's poetry, are hard to understand or or hard to figure out. Some have thought fruit of the land is that he's also going to restore the land to them. And he he will after the exile. 
But here we're talking the end of times. And so I think most likely this is still talking about the Messiah and, and that he's, has, has God, he has divine origin, he has human origin, and it is going to be an incredible day. It's going to be a great day. The people will take pride and honor in it. In Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, a parallel passage, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so we see Isaiah coming back to hope. Because even in the middle of darkness, even in the darkness of their own defiance of God, there's hope that the Messiah can cleanse, that the Messiah can heal. Verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Again, understanding Isaiah, we, we want to always think of context. And what time period is he talking about here? He's talking about the end of times. And so when he talks about a remnant, those left in Zion, he's talking about those that are saved, those that have believed in Jesus Christ, that have gone through the judgment and now are with him in in the new heaven and the new earth. We see a clue to that at the end of verse 3. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. It's a reference to the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21-27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, for only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so Isaiah is saying there's greatness coming. It's incredible, but only for those that are written in the book of life, only for those that follow Yahweh, that have been redeemed by the Lamb. Verse 4, he goes on and says, But when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And in the middle of hope, he says, but there has to be a cleansing. The Messiah will cleanse. And, and the, the, the word here for filth is the same word that is often used of vomit. It's, it's a disgusting thing. And Isaiah says, but God has to cleanse the sin. The Messiah will cleanse the sin. This is how Our names are written in the book of life. This is how we have eternity with God. See, we might think, well, why is there there the statement of judgment? What a downer statement in the middle of this, this wonderful statement of hope. But Isaiah understands that without the cleansing, without the judgment, there can be no hope. See, this morning as we study God's Word and as as we look through the, the whole of God's Word, we know that hope isn't just something we glibly can hold for everybody and live however we want. Hope is something that is given to the children of God, to His adopted sons and daughters who have trusted in His name and have been cleansed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to, to share how great this is. Then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. And we can look at that and that, that should bring some, some, some memories to mind, right? Where have we seen a cloud by day and fire by night? Israel, right? Children of Israel in the Exodus. 
And, and God led them with a cloud by day. And then at night, as he was leading them, a pillar of fire. When they would stop, what would happen with that cloud and that pillar of fire? Do you remember? I'm going to say it stopped over the tabernacle. That's what I heard, right? A lot, a lot of voices. But it stopped over the tabernacle and went to the tabernacle because it represented the very presence of God. And so in the, the Israel would set up their camp around the tabernacle with all the different tribes in order and facing the tabernacle because that was where God dwelt. And they wanted to be near God. And so this is a marvelous statement. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. And what he's saying is, in in that day, when we are in the new heaven and new earth with Christ, he's not just going to be in the tabernacle. Over the whole of Zion, over the whole of the new heaven and earth will be his presence the cloud by day, the fire by night. And it's a reminder that in heaven and glory, we will be in sweet communion with God. We will be in His very presence. His glorious presence, as Isaiah mentioned in chapter 3. And he goes on to give another imagery there. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. And, And we don't understand necessarily the imagery of a canopy, but this referred to a wedding canopy. And when a husband and wife would get married, they would bring a canopy. I don't know if you've seen any movies where there's Jewish weddings. They still do this, and they have this canopy over them. And that represented communion. That represented intimacy and connection. And so when God says this, He's saying, someday, in that day, I will be in sweet communion with my bride, the church. What a glorious day. What a glorious hope to know that we will be with Christ. We will be with God. And there will be no veil. There will be no enmity. There will be communion and presence. And so this is a wonderful promise. Verse 6, There will be a booth for shade and by day and from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. And again, he's, he's saying, I'll be with you, but I'll also protect you. I'll be shade for you from the heat. I'll be a refuge. I'll be a shelter for you from any storm or rain. And this is part of Isaiah's call to the people, come to God. Come to God. And at times the call is, this is what's waiting for you if you do. And at times the call is, because of your sin, you're not there. This could be if you would turn to God. I think probably John was reflecting on Isaiah as he wrote Revelation. And in Revelation 21, 3-5, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Same picture. There will be a day in that day when we are cleansed and in sweet fellowship with our Lord where there won't be any tears, where there won't be any fear, where nothing can harm us. 
That's good news in this world. Good news in a Genesis 3 world because this is a Revelation 21 world. And so I often use the phrase stolen from Albert Moeller, a Genesis 3 world referring to the fall. Revelation 21 reverses that. And it's God redeeming creation back to Himself. One thought as we think of this, sometimes we look at that passage and we think that's going to be wonderful because I'm going to be happy. It's not the point. It's not the point of the Revelation passage. It's not the point of the Isaiah passage. It's that's going to be incredible because I'm going to be with God and praising God and in His glorious presence. It's important to note as Isaiah is trying to turn the heart of the people away from themselves and to the glorious God. What a picture in Isaiah 4 of what we can look forward to, of the incredible things that are to come when we follow God. But then there's chapter 5. And chapter 5 jumps back to warning. We get a little bit of good news again, like Pastor Andrew talked about, and then we get a whole lot of bad news. And the reason is, the good news is what could be, but the bad news addresses what is, and, and where they're at, and what they need to change. And, and, and as hard as it is, we have to deal with that. We do the same thing with our kids, don't we? If we, if we let our kids go and just say, oh, you, it can be great if you're good, it can be great if you're a man, if we never address the sin in their lives, because they are little sinners, then, then we create monsters. We create people that have never dealt with sin and are completely self-centered. And so Isaiah here, the Holy Spirit through Isaiah, comes back to deal with sin. In this case, he does it in a different way, in a song. And so I can just picture Isaiah... He probably didn't have a guitar or a piano, but grabbing whatever instrument they had and starting to sing. And people are like, hey, a song, we get a free concert. And they're coming to hear this. And and we get to chapter 5. Let's read the first seven verses. Um, This is the song of the vineyard. And the, the larger category of this whole chapter is we're warned by the darkness of the wild vineyard. God's people despise God's total care and will be judged. In this case, God's people, the children of Israel, they despise God's total care and they will be judged. Verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So he starts to sing and it's in song form and, and probably people gather around to hear the song. Hey, this is going to be an encouraging word from Isaiah finally. But Isaiah is using an illustration to make a point. In verse 2, he goes on, and, and this might be something that you highlight in, in blue because as, as we read this, this is God's sovereignty, His control over all things. God, God says, He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. In verses 1 and 2, that's the setup that God is, is like a vineyard owner and He does everything for this vineyard. He cares for it, cultivates it. The wall was to protect from animals or marauders or people coming in and, and damaging the vineyard. There's a watchtower for protection. There's a wine vat. It's ready to go. God has given everything that's needed. And we see God's expectation of the vineyard. And that might be something you, you highlight in orange. And He looked for it to yield grapes. And so the idea is God did all this work and all He wanted was a crop. 
All he wanted was a people that would serve him and bear fruit. And at the end of verse 2, it says, but it yielded wild grapes. And we think of that and we're like, oh, wild, wild fruit, that's not bad. The Hebrew word for wild grapes here is stink fruit. It's putrefied fruit. I mean, we just went camping and lived out of an ice chest for a couple of weeks. Sometimes you run out of ice. And sometimes the food that was still in the ice chest, you don't eat anymore. Because it smells rancid. And so God is saying here, I looked for my vineyard to yield grapes and it was rancid. It was disgusting. It was gross. It was putrefied. It was sickening. Right now, maybe they're still thinking the songs about a vineyard. Because now in 3 and 4, he asked them to be the judge, to, to make a, a decision on this. Oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I have looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield stink fruit? Or wild grapes. And I can just picture the people hearing this. Well, of course, if, if you did all that for the vineyard and it didn't yield a crop and it was fertile ground, it should have yielded a crop, man, get rid of that puppy. And so he goes on in verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed or briars and thorns shall grow up in it. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And God in His sovereignty executes judgment on this vineyard. And in case they miss it, in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And if you're hearing it and you hadn't have gotten it yet and you're the house of Israel, you're like, oh man. Isaiah's being a downer again. But he's speaking truth. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting that he wanted fruit out of. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And what Isaiah is setting up with this illustration is God has given everything needed. He's given everything in blessing to them. Everything to be a nation of God, to be a light for him. In fact, it said in verse 4, what more could he have done? And they abused the grace. And they abused the gift. And instead of giving fruit that is pleasing to God, they gave stink fruit to God. And that should make us a little sick. See, every care had been lavished on the vineyard. The result was like it had never been touched like God's grace had never touched them. And what application for us. God has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has died on the cross for us at, at great cost. The cost of His life. He has adopted us as sons and daughters of the King. Not just servants, but sons and daughters. And the question is, do we act like we've been touched by grace? Do we act any differently has any of that made a difference in how I treat my family? In how I go about my work? In how I talk about my boss and my work ethic? Does it make a difference in my marriage? Can, can people look at me and say, that person has been touched by grace. They've been cultivated. They are a sweet vineyard. Or does it just look like wild grapes that have had nothing happen to it? One of our trips in Israel 
We were at the bottom of Lachish, a town that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later in Isaiah. And we were walking through vineyards. And it, it just was a, a neat thing. I haven't walked through vineyards before. I know through Central Valley there's a lot of them we passed. But um, we were walking through vineyards and looking at the grapes. And in, in one case, we were walking between two vineyards. And this vineyard on the right, it, they had these, these um, cables for the vines to go on. No weeds. It was cultivated. They had a whole watering system. And these grapes were full and lush. And it was amazing. And we did not pick any. It wasn't our vineyard. But it was a beautiful thing. And then off to the left, on the other side of where we were walking, was this field that was also a vineyard, but it looked like no one had touched it for a year. The weeds were as high as the grapevines. Some of the cables were broken. Some of the vines were broken down. There were grapes every now and then. There were a lot of grapes on the ground. It was, it was gross. And that's really the picture here that God is saying is, I've, I've, I've made you the lush vineyard and you're giving fruit like the, the crummy vineyard, the disgusting vineyard. Do you really despise me that much? that you haven't been touched by grace. In 2 Corinthians 6, 1, a verse we studied several months ago, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Not to receive the grace of God in vain. Let it touch you. Let it flow over your life. Let it control you and affect your thoughts, your actions, your words. And we see the, the judgment here. God says, okay, if, if the vineyard isn't producing, it's gone. And we know that. If a, if a crop isn't producing, the farmer usually burns it, usually gets rid of it, starts over, maybe a different crop. He says, I'm going to remove protection from you. I'm going to allow weeds and bad growth to come up and choke you out. There's going to be no rain, no sustenance because you are despising me and turning your back on me. So we see a description of the coming exile, the coming judgment on Israel. And while this is written for Israel in their setting and their time, the lessons are made loud and clear for us. He moves on in the rest of the chapter to talk about what caused the wild grapes, what caused the putrefaction of the, the fruit and this, this list is going to read like it's out of our papers today. I'll just warn you of that. And as we go through the list, it can be so easy to say, that's our government. That's our country. That's what's happening. That's true, and that's appropriate to go to in some cases. But what I don't want you to miss this morning is we need to go to the personal side of this. Because the six woes, the six stink fruit things that we're going to see also can occur in us individually and do occur in us individually. So it's easy to point our fingers at government or culture or others, but this morning, let's look inside. And so in 8, we start a series of, of six woes, of six things that are going to bring judgment, things that are bringing calamity, six sins that the people are, are, are committing. And like Andrew said last week, woe isn't a good term here. It's a term of sorrow, regret, and anger, of judgment. It also was used for to lament at funerals. And God not only judges, but He laments our sins. The first woe we see in 8 through 10, it's greed. Greed. 
Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Anyone read that and wonder why that's a a woe? This is where it's poetry and it's good to dig into. I I read that and I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. And and so I, I need to study that. What he's talking about here is, is the idea of, of adding on and adding on, of, of always wanting more stuff. Okay, I have a house and I'm going to take the house next to me and add it to my property. I'm going to take the field next to me and add it to my property. Now, who had those fields? How do you take them? You take them from the poor. You take them from those that can't hold on to them anymore. And so what this was was a picture of a land grab, of, of acquiring more and more stuff for self at the expense of others. Greed on steroids. Now what was so despicable about this was that land was a gift from God to Israel. It was sacred to God. And in fact, land for them was their inheritance. It was their livelihood. They were an agrarian society. And, and so to take someone's land was to take their ability to survive. In Leviticus 25, we have a whole lot of God's instructions about land. And and the basic instruction is, the land is mine. It isn't yours. You're my stewards on it. So here's how I want you to take care of it. In Leviticus 25, 23, it says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. And he goes on to describe the year of Jubilee, that every 50 years land was returned to families. And so this whole idea of I'm taking away from people and taking their land was a direct offense to God, a direct defiance to God. Micah, a prophet uh, prophesying at the same time as Isaiah, contemporary with Isaiah to Judah, said they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house and a man his inheritance. And so we see the first woe is one of greed. I see, I want, I take. And it's all about me and my desires. And God doesn't let it go. He says, and you were made to dwell alone in the midst of your land. And so the idea is you've taken so much that you don't even have neighbors anymore. But it's not a good thing. It's a lonely thing. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. And what he's saying here is, in verse 9, the land's going to be desolate. He's speaking of the exile. You, You want, you take, you take, you take. Well, guess what? You're not going to keep. I'm going to take it from you and you're going to be left with nothing. And those houses, they're going to be empty. The things you pride in, you won't be enjoying. And in verse 10, he goes back to the vineyard motif and he says, in the, in the vineyard, it's not going to yield a crop. Ten acres of vineyard, some of your translations may say ten yokes of vineyard. It, it was a measurement that, of what ten yoke of oxen could plow in a day. And, and so it was, it, this was a large vineyard. And it says that it only gives you one bath, and that was about five, six gallons of, of wine. So you have a huge vineyard, you work all season, you get five, six gallons. And, and they would say, well, this is ridiculous. And then it says, an uh, uh, omer of seed shall yield but an ephah. 
And, and an omer is about 10 times an ephah. And so what it's saying is you're only going to get a 10% yield on your crop. You plant a field with this much, you only get 10% of that back. Usually they were looking for 10 times the result. And so God is saying, because of your greed, it'll be taken from you and it won't work. It will not yield fruit. And so woe number one, greed, is sort of where the sequence starts of six woes. It's, it's looking at self and satisfying self and, and starting to, to take what we want. You know, a lesson out of this is all of our stuff is actually owned by God. It's no different now. The house you have, the car you have, the stuff you have, it's all owned by God and we are but stewards of it. He's asked us to take care of it. And so the question is, what are we going to do with that? How are we going to use it? Are we using it for God's glory? Are we using it to oppress people or just not necessarily oppress people, just be about ourselves? Greed is the first woe. Second woe in verses 11 and 12 is self-indulgence. Second um, sin that they were committing and why God is judging them. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. And this is the sin of self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. They were just about partying, just about feasting. I'm going to get drunk as early as I can. I'm going to just be about myself. I'm going to run after whatever I want. And we see in the end of 11 that the wine inflames them or controls them or, or generates their desires. And we have a picture of a people that are so given over to pleasure and self that they can't think of anything else. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and the wine at their feasts. And feasts were often religious festivals. And so even their times that we were supposed to be worshiping were just about self and party. And this is the vineyard that God planted. And He gave them everything, and they're using it as self-indulgence to ignore God. And so it's not just that they're not grateful to God, they're using what He gave to sin. to God that's sick it should be to us see self-indulgence we see at the end of 12 there leads to spiritual blindness it leads to dullness because he says at the end but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands they don't acknowledge him they can't even see what he's doing they can't see the, the grace that he's given they can't see what he wants to do in their lives Isn't that how self-indulgence does? When we're about self, when we're just pursuing what we want and entertaining ourselves and making ourselves happy, we don't see anything else. We're blind to what God is doing because that doesn't make us happy. That's Him. That That might cost us something. They didn't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Romans 8.5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. There's two kinds of people in this world. People devoted to flesh, people devoted to the Spirit. 
There's really no in-between. There's, there's no room to say, well, I'm a good person. I don't believe in God, but I'm a good person. No, you're about the flesh. One author called it a sensate person. You're really still about your senses and what you want and what you desire. And Romans 8 says, those are the two kinds of people. Are you about the flesh? Or are you about the spirit? And he challenges them to not be spiritually dull, but to see what God has done. Think for a moment. Just, 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 just pause and think. What has God given you? What has God done for you? As we start to order our thoughts that direction, we start to have a change of spirit. He has done so much. His grace is abundant and it is amazing. We have an interlude here of some therefores and and Isaiah mixes into the woes some of the results of those woes, some of the therefores. We have two here in verse 13 and verse 14. In verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. He's referring to they didn't even recognize their creator. They didn't recognize the God who has given them so much. And, and so much of this comes back to, do we recognize God's work? Or am I about myself? The land grab wasn't recognizing God's instruction, but saying, I want. The self-indulgence was, I want to be entertained. I want to be happy. And it wasn't recognizing the Creator. This is where culture has gotten into trouble because we have denied a Creator. We have forgotten that we are created beings for a created purpose. And once you remove a Creator from the mix, and we see this over the last 50 years in culture, once you remove the Creator from the mix, you start spiraling down into self-centeredness that gets worse and worse and worse because without a God, there will be a God. And we will worship something. And this is why we stand so firm on creation and so firm on recognizing our Creator. And so for the people of Israel, they go into exile for lack of knowledge, for forgetting their Creator. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Isaiah is directly addressing that they drink all all day and and honor their senses and, and just do what they want. He goes on to 14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. Sheol is the grave, the, the, the world of the dead. And he's saying, okay, you, you think you're satisfying your hunger with partying? There's a hunger that Sheol has that you're not going to be able to resist. Let's think of the bigger picture here, guys. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. It's referencing the exile there that these, these fields and these mansions that they've created, they're not going to be inhabiting. It's going to be animals inhabiting it and wanderers because they will be brought low. We exalt self. God humbles self. And it may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow, but it will happen. 
Then we have four more woes that just spiral self-centeredness down. The next one in verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. I've titled these two verses, Two-Faced Spiritual Cynicism. Two-Faced Spiritual Cynicism. We have to understand some of the images that are here. In, in 18, the image is of an oxen that is tied or roped to a cart, that is drawing a cart. Whenever you see that word draw, it's drawing a cart, pulling a cart. And he's saying, you're drawing iniquity with the cords. The ropes are deceit. You're, you're, you're self-deceived. You're deceiving yourself and you're staying in sin. You've attached yourselves to sin. You've relished sin. And then in 19, you see the cynicism. You see the defiance of God who says, let him, and he's talking to God, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. And it's a challenge to God saying, God, if you're there, work fast. Then maybe I'll follow you. If you do things to my satisfaction, then I'll be your child, your child and follow you. And then finally, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. If what we're doing so wrong, why hasn't the Holy Spirit come? Let Him tell us we're wrong. And this is just a sickening defiance, spitting in the face of God. It's the child that looks up to you after you've given an instruction and says, but I don't want to. Which no children ever say, unless they're human. Do you see what is happening here? And so that self-centeredness and that ignoring of the Creator has now turned to skepticism and cynicism of the Creator. Well, if He was really there, He would do this. And it gets worse. In verse 20, we get the fourth woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's reversed moral values. Reversed moral values or moral perversion. We're going to call sin good and good sin. I don't even know if I need to give cultural examples of that because it's in the news every day. As we are called intolerant bigots for holding to the truth of God's Word. But hold to the truth of God's Word. As now we see gay marriage and abortion and homosexuality applauded as a virtue. We saw it in the Olympics. And it's sin. It's clear in Scripture that it's sin. But when we, when we abandon a Creator and become cynical of Creator, the next step is we start to make our own morality and we base morality on what I want. And because if there's no Creator, what's right or wrong depends on what I feel like doing. And there is no objective truth anymore because that's all based on the character of a creator. And so, so what's being described here is this descent into the pit of hell that God must judge. He cannot let go. And in small ways, we do the same thing personally. We justify our sin. We, have, we call it good Because we don't want to give it up. Because ultimately, we're ignoring the Creator and elevating self. 
fifth woe in chapter in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Now we get to pride and self-delusion. Now not only have I ignored God and despised God and created morality based on what I want, now I've elevated myself as God, as wisdom. And this is the progression that always happens. We become wise in our own eyes. Well, look at me. I'm so knowledgeable. I know what's best here. Shrewd in our own sight. Romans 1 describes this so very clearly. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You see the same sequence. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things or creepy things. It's a path that starts by ignoring God and elevating self. And finally, the sixth woe is is just the complete breakdown of society, the perversion of justice in 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And these are two two, two thoughts that we may not think go together, but it's people that are so self-indulgent, that are so concerned about self, that now we've elevated it as a virtue. They're heroes at drinking wine, valiant men and mixing strong drink. The, the people that were honored were now the people that were all about self and partying and, and doing stupid things. Whereas they should have been people with values and morals that were from the character of God. And so the result of that is they acquit the guilty for a bribe. Because if there's no morals, if there's no standard, if it's all based on what I want and what benefits me, yeah, I'll I'll abuse someone else for a bribe. I'll let the guilty go. I'll deprive the innocent of his right because, hey, it helps me. And so we see ultimate corruption. This is where Israel was. This is why God had to judge. He could not let this go. And so we end with the therefores at the end, 24 through 30. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, their blossoms go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. And that's a military name. They've rejected his law. They've despised his word of the Holy One of Israel. And that's the bottom line. They rejected and despised God who gave them everything. A God of justice, the Lord of hosts, a God of righteousness and holiness, the Holy One of Israel. It's interesting because the the picture here is that when we, when, we, when we devolve into that kind of self-centeredness, we go up in flames like that. And some of you have been watching the blue-cut fire, and, and we, we saw 
what, what firefighters are saying, a fire that expanded and erupted like nothing they have ever seen in their history of, of firefighting. I can remember in the morning hearing there was a fire and in the afternoon seeing where the fire was in eight hours and it was astounding because the brush just went up like that. That's the judgment God is describing. He's saying self-centeredness goes up like that. It burns, it's empty, it's hollow. It will be judged. Come to God, people, Isaiah is arguing. So then in 25, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And here we see his sovereignty. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. So Israel's neglecting him, defying him, and God just has to whistle and all the other nations go vroom and obey him. It's like whistling for your dog. Dogs are great loyal animals and they just come, right? What a sovereign God we serve. It goes on to say that nothing will stop them and they will execute God's judgment. And I end with one of the most depressing verses because it's the end of the preface and setting up the rest of the book, setting up the hope. Verse 30, they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The story of the vineyard is a light that is darkened by sin, by stink fruit. And we're challenged to say, Are we looking out for those sins? Are we looking out for those things in our lives? Am I worried about greed or am I letting self-centeredness start there with my stuff? Self-indulgence, am I about entertainment or am I about worship? Two-faced spiritual cynicism when we start to question God and wonder if He's really there. Reversed moral values. Now we may not have that here, but are we standing against that? Pride and self-delusion and then a perversion of justice. And I put two questions on on the end of your notes. What can we learn about God? And in every chapter in Isaiah, we should ask that question. What do we learn about God? Now, you can go back and look at your yellow highlights. That'll help you with that. But we learn that He is a holy one and righteous. We learn that He is the Lord of hosts and will judge sin. We've learned that he expects, he's creator, he's given everything we need, and our response should be good fruit. And that really moves to what can we learn from the prophet? What can we apply? We are blessed with God's grace. We have his word. Jesus has died on the cross for us and given us his righteousness. The challenge for us is what kind of fruit are we going to bear? Rancid, rotting, stink fruit that act like grace hasn't touched us? Or are we going to bear fruit that shows that we've been cultivated and cared for and nurtured? That's where the hope comes from. I echo Isaiah's call. Let's walk with God. Let's look forward to eternity when we are in the very presence, the glorious presence of God and live like it now. Let's pray.
Lord God, our Father, as we study Isaiah, help us not to get depressed, but to be challenged, to be convicted. Lord, as a congregation, as individuals, help us to start to stamp out pride in our lives right now. Ways that we shake our fist at you, that we think our way is better, or even ways that we just are about pleasure and we forget to even think about you. Lord, help us to be consciously aware that we are always bearing fruit and you so desire good fruit from us. May we walk in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.